Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, we left off on Friday with the story of Deborah and Yael. Deborah was Israel's fourth judge and the only female judge. But what was it with these judges? Well, after the Israelites conquer the land of Canaan, more or less, and they settle it in their distinct individual geographic territories, they begin what I call a cycle of sin. Now picture, if you will, the face of a clock. At 12 o'clock, we have a nation serving God. Then, at 1 o'clock, the nation does evil. At 2 o'clock, the nation forsakes God. At 3 o'clock, the nation follows its own way. At four o'clock, depression and war result. At five o'clock, the nation is sold into slavery. And at six o'clock, they hit rock bottom. The nation suffers servitude. But then, at seven o'clock, the nation cries out to God. And at eight o'clock, the nation turns back to God. At nine o'clock, the nation repents. At 10 o'clock, God raises a judge. At 11 o'clock, the nation is delivered. And at 12 o'clock, we have the nation serving God once again. In the book of Judges, we go through 13 cycles of sin. A judge correcting the problem each time. But all the while, the judges become themselves more and more corrupt. So I'd like to move now, we've been exploring the women of the Bible, and I'd like to move now to the story of Jephthah and his daughter. Jephthah was judge number nine. And I turn over to Judges chapter 10, beginning at verse six. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the god of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. So here they are at six o'clock on our cycle of sin. For 18 years, they all oppressed the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan River in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. Now, the Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, Oh, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And the Lord replied, now we're in the ninth cycle of this. When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites opposed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. I am fed up with you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Huh, I just had it. 
But the Israelites said to the Lord, Oh, oh, we, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Well, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. They said to him, You're not going to get any inheritance in our family because you're the son of another woman, the son not of a concubine, as Hagar was a concubine for Abraham, but no, the son of a prostitute. He didn't even know who his father was. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers, mercenaries, gathered around him and followed him. Jephthah becomes a mighty warrior, a very tough mercenary leader. Now, sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, I don't think so. Didn't you hate me? and drive me from my father's house, and now when you're in trouble, you come running to me? Get lost. But the elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all who live in Gilead. Well, Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. You're really going to put me in charge of all the people? And the elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And then, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you have attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok rivers all the way to the Jordan. Give it back peaceably. We want our land back. It's been 300 years. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, the oasis. 
Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh Barnea. Which brings up a point. When the Israelites left Egypt and moved into the Sinai, the 40 years in the wilderness, they did not wander aimlessly around the Sinai. No, they spent 37, more or less, of the 40 years at Kadesh Barnea. But they could not get past the Ammonites and the Moabites. They stayed at Kadesh Barnea. They made two attempts to travel through that territory on the east side of the Jordan River. Both times they were repulsed. Finally, Moses said, we've got to get into the land of Canaan. So rather than go up the King's Highway, the main international trade route that runs through the eastern mountain range, they went way around by the desert route, a very dangerous route because of the, the heat and the lack of water. But they come in through the back door of Moab, and that's how the Israelites enter. They didn't wander aimlessly for 40 years. About 37 of those years, there they were at the beautiful oasis of Kadesh Barnea. But back to our text. They stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon River. See, they went all around by the back door. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Yahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands and defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok rivers and from the desert to the Jordan. That's the history, said Jephthah. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. What, are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, the Aror, and the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon River. Why didn't you retake them during that time? Look, I've not wronged you. I've not wronged you, but you were doing me wrong by waging war against me. You know, we've lived the status quo here for 300 years. You bring this up now? Let the Lord the judge decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. Well, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent. He simply tore it up and dropped it in the fire. And then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. 
He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Amorites, Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now listen carefully, everyone. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. That's the vow. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from the Aurora to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as abel Karamim, and thus Israel subdued Ammon. Jephthah won a great victory, and he had taken a vow. So when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child, Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. Well, when he saw her, he tore his clothes. He cried, Oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. She replied, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. And from this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. This is a troublesome story. The story of Jephthah and his daughter presents one of the greatest dilemmas in Scripture, and it's generated much discussion and debate. Although we read in Deuteronomy 23, 22-34, that if a person makes a vow to God, he must keep it, we also read earlier in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12, that when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of the nations there. Let there not be found among you anyone who causes their son or daughter to pass through the fire as a human sacrifice. Anyone who does such things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of such abominations, the Lord your God is dispossessing them before you. In addition, we learn that Manasseh, who reigned as king of Judah from 686 to 642 B.C., immolated his child 
by fire. 2 Kings 21, verse 6. And it was one of his many sins and the greatest of them. In Judaism, the story of Jephthah and his daughter is most often presented as a lesson against making rash vows. St. John Chrysostom, who lived from 349 to 407, agreed, saying that God allowed Jephthah to kill his daughter in order to prevent similar rash vows to be made in the future, and that the annual four-day bewailing of the event took place as a constant reminder. St. Ambrose, who lived from 340 to 397, took a different approach, citing the story as an example of how, in serving God, it's sometimes contrary to duty to fulfill a vow or a promise, especially if it's made rashly. Since the Middle Ages, other Jewish and Christian scholars have argued that Jephthah did not sacrifice his daughter at all. Rather, he kept her in seclusion as a perpetual virgin. Now, here's the argument. And read the vow very carefully. I read it to you again. If you deliver the Ammonites into my power, said Jephthah, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return from the Ammonites in peace, he shall belong to the Lord. I shall offer him up as a burnt offering. Now, grammatically, whatever comes out, he shall belong, I shall offer him up, are all third-person masculine singulars, suggesting that since Jephthah has only one daughter and no other men live in his house, he was thinking of a clean male animal. The doors of my house refer to the doors, including the lintels and doorposts on either side, as well as the coverings above them, and the house refers to an ordinary dwelling with a courtyard in which domestic animals would sleep, again suggesting that Jephthah is thinking of a clean male animal, a bull, a sheep, or a goat, a burnt offering, as prescribed in Leviticus chapter 1. When making his vow, Jephthah would never consider offering a human being. Consequently, when his daughter comes out of the house to greet him, he's stunned. That possibility just never occurred to him. The only way to resolve the dilemma is for Jephthah to offer his daughter as a perpetual virgin perhaps having her serve at the tabernacle, giving her wholly to God. We learn in 1 Samuel that there were such virgins living there, for the priest Eli chastises his sons for deflowering the virgins who tended to the tabernacle. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, 22-25. And notice too, that Jephthah's daughter and her friends spend two months in the mountains, not mourning because she'll never marry, but quite literally, weeping 
for her virginity, not for her life. Finally, consider that by offering his daughter as a perpetual virgin, Jephthah brings his own family line to an end, for he has no other children. We learn that in chapter 11, verse 34 of Judges. In a profound sense, then, Jephthah himself becomes the burnt offering, wholly consumed, a sweet savor unto the Lord. Viewed in this way, Jephthah's action is both substitutionary and redemptive. Thus, when we turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, the catalog of the great heroes of faith, Jephthah is listed as a hero of faith. Now that is a pretty clever solution to a very difficult problem. That brings us to the end of the story of Jephthah and his daughter. A difficult story. One that, oh gosh, commentators have struggled with forever. But I think we're right on target with the approach that we've taken. So there we are, Jephthah and his daughter. You know, with all of this, we don't even know his daughter's name. But she's certainly one of the hero, heroic women of the Bible. Thank you, folks. I'll be back again on Wednesday. Bye-bye now.